Let's stand together for the reading of God's word this morning. We'll begin with our Old Testament passage reading, which comes to us from Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6, and we'll be reading from verses 11 through 16 this morning. This is a very interesting time in Israel's history, the whole book of Judges. The time of this passage that we're going to be reading from, this was a time when Israel was being oppressed by a people known as the Midianites. And out of the midst of this difficult period, God raised up a man that he would use to bring victory for Israel. Let's read of this call of Gideon. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree that was at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abilzerite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of power. Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Did I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my plan is weakest than Manasseh, and I am least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. It's interesting to read this and see God selecting Gideon to be a hero, to be a great warrior who will strike a mighty blow against the Midianites. And the entire time, Gideon is saying, how in the world am I going to do this? I'm nobody. My clan is nobody. My family is nobody. And where's the Lord in all this? Gideon struggled to believe that God would use him. He didn't see anything in himself that could possibly lead. But the point of it was that God would use him to lead. He would take this man who was really in many ways a nobody and use him in a mighty way for his people. With this in mind, let's turn to our main passage this morning, which comes to us from Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, and we'll be reading the first five verses of this chapter, beginning the Sermon on the Mount in earnest and beginning to read in the Beatitudes this morning. Matthew 5, beginning at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for this word of scripture that you've given to us, that you've preserved throughout the centuries to bring here across the world to people, Father, who have no claim on you, but whom you have called to your side. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading of the words, all of our hearts, and bless the words that come from my mouth, and help the thoughts and meditation of all our hearts, Father, to be pleasing and acceptable to you. Because of Jesus Christ, we pray this. Amen. Please be seated.
assuming you could find one really with any kind of ease today, if you could walk into a bookstore, if you walk into a bookstore, then you will find a lot of books that are really just geared towards life hacking, you might call it, or self-help. Pick any given Barnes and Nobles or Books a Million or any other chain that still happens to exist these days, you'll see shelves of books right near the front of the store, right in the entrance. And at least a few of those book stacks will have books that have people smiling and well-dressed, um, ready to help make your day that much better with their simple sounding advice. The bases might change, the types of advice that they offer might be different, but you will always find self-improvement books of all sorts ready to help you and make your life better at 20 to $25 or so a book. Why are those books always there? Why are they so popular? I think one reason is that in one way or another, those different books are offering to teach us how to have the good life, we might call it, the ideal life. There's some kind of way that a person ought to live their life or have their life ordered so that it is praiseworthy, so that it is good, irrefutably good on some level. And we all understand this. We all understand that there is some kind of gold standard out there. This is how you should have your life ordered. And if you do, then everything is golden. And if I just had that, I would have it right. And I think self-help books or advice books, when they're, when they're well-written, when they're good, are an attempt to lead you in that direction. If they're not promising to give you the good life out and out, then at least it's a step in the right direction. You want to organize your house in this particular way. You want to build up, let's say, your deck in the back way. You want to arrange your diet in such and such a way. And if you start to walk in those ways, then you're a step closer to the good life. Now, why am I talking about all this? I'm talking about these things because I hope it will begin to help us understand the Beatitudes, which Lord willing will be examining over the next three sermons or so. In the ESV translation that we use here at New Life Burbank that I read from, Jesus says, blessed are such and such a people. He says that multiple times. Other translations might say happy instead of blessed, depending upon your translation. Now, when the translators of the Bible say something like happy are or blessed are, it's an attempt to bring a certain Greek word into English that doesn't translate easily. The Greek word is makarios. Now, you know a little bit of Greek. But neither blessed nor happy quite capture the feeling of what makarios is saying in Greek. They not, neither of them quite is what Jesus is saying. When we talk about blessing in church, we sometimes think about like the benediction that I say at the end of the church service. When I pronounce um, something for you, I pronounce a blessing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's not the kind of blessing that Jesus has in mind. Nor are they describing somebody who is happy as we normally think about it. When we think about happy, we think about somebody who is, has an emotional, is emotionally positive, emotionally happy. That's not what Jesus is getting at either. A person who is Makarios has something that is indisputably, irrefutably good. As long as this person has this thing that is Makarios, 
Whatever circumstances they hit, are in, as long as they have this Makarios thing, he has something that is almost divine levels of good, almost godly levels of good. As long as he is Makarios, he has the good life. He is a fortunate person. She is a fortunate woman, period. Now, by beginning with a term like that at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was telling the disciples and the other people listening about the kingdom of heaven. A person who was a citizen of the kingdom was blessed, had the good life that God always intended for humankind to have. Every good thing that they could possibly want, every good and spiritual gift was theirs because they were in the kingdom of God. But what does the good life look like? How were they meant to live it out? What sort of people were they supposed to be because they are in the kingdom? Well, the Beatitudes describe the characteristics of such people who belong in the kingdom of heaven. Every believer has these characteristics, and they are meant to live them out. They are meant to grow in them over time. Now, because we can't go over all the Beatitudes in detail today, it would simply take too long, and there's too much here. Like I said, we'll be talking about them over the next couple of weeks. Today, we'll be focusing on the first three. And I think the thing that links them together is humility. Humility is a key to being in the kingdom of God. The blessings of the kingdom are given only to the person who is humble before the Lord. Each one of these Beatitudes, I think, will teach us what humility before God looks like. And there are three things that we'll look at, one for each Beatitude. You'll first see that the blessed person is poor in spirit. Second, we'll see that the blessed person is mournful. And then third, you will see that he is meek. So why is the blessed person poor in spirit? Really, that seems odd to start like Jesus did in verse 3. Blessed, is the, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How can a poor person be blessed? Because a person who is spiritually poor has nothing to offer God. Because of his natural sin and rebellion against God, because that is his default setting against the Lord, the spiritually poor person can do nothing to offer anything to God. He has nothing good really about him or her. He might be an extremely moral person. He might be the sort of person that you just aspire to be like. You look at that person, you say, that's a good guy. That's a great woman. I want to be like them. But nonetheless, in God's eyes, however moral they are, they've got nothing to offer him. Even if their deeds and works look good overall to us, they are worthless to God because they are not done to a right end. They are not done to glorify the Lord. And as long as that is the case, however good the person seems to us, they're spiritually bankrupt. But the unrepentant person doesn't see this. They don't see their spiritual poverty, or they don't understand how much they lack before God. We're being honest, they really don't think about God all that much at all. But when they do, they think to themselves, if there is a God out there, or because there's a God out there, I know I'm good enough. And if he wants something from me, then I've done enough to make him happy. But such thoughts and beliefs are deceptive, at best, self-deceptive. In reality, not only have they not done enough to satisfy God, to satisfy his demand, but they are completely incapable at the outset of meeting that demand. 
if God demanded, say, a spiritual, a spiritual equivalent of a gold bar from them, then they would come to him in crummy clothes and a, a holy wallet that has flies coming out of it and say, here you go. As if this is what God wanted and if he should be happy with it. God calls for spiritual wealth from us. And the spiritually poor person can't offer him spiritual populate. Their sin is so consuming, so pervasive, they have nothing to offer God and no way to challenge that and no way to change this. But the person whom Jesus is talking about, the person who is poor in the heart, according to Jesus, knows all of these things. And when he looks at his life and compares it to the perfection of God and the holiness of his standards, then the spiritually poor person, according to Jesus, is struck by his own spiritual bankruptcy. While his neighbor is confident in his pretended holiness, the poor in heart is absolutely and utterly broken because he has nothing to offer God and he knows that. None of his so-called good deeds are of any lasting value. Anything he would bring to God would be like setting up a scarecrow and expecting it to stand up to a tornado. It's not going to happen. It's not going to be useful. He knows all of this and he cannot hide it from God. He doesn't try to. The person who is poor in heart turns to God and he says honestly, I have nothing to give you. There's nothing I could possibly give to you and there is no reason I can offer for why you would listen to me. Nonetheless, please be merciful. Otherwise, I am completely lost. And that sort of person, Jesus says, possesses the kingdom of heaven. That sort of person is a citizen of the kingdom and they are united to its ruler. And they will inherit the kingdom and all of its treasures because they have humbly turned to God and begged for his help. And he responded to them with grace, with kindness. Because they admitted their complete and absolute spiritual poverty and brought no pretense of spiritual wealth to God. The riches of Jesus' kingdom belong to them only to them. If you're familiar with the Gospels as a whole, then you probably know that Jesus tended to attract people that we would charitably call the dregs of society. Some of the people that are most famous for following Jesus or coming to him were career prostitutes and tax collectors who were basically um, blatant white-collar thieves, and everyone knew it. And yet, these people came to Jesus, and he received them gladly. Why? Because they knew that they had nothing to offer him. Their spiritual lives were a disaster. They were filled with evil that they could do nothing to clean up and nothing to rehabilitate. But then they met Jesus, and in him they found someone who could do for them what they couldn't do for themselves. They found someone who could forgive them make them spiritually clean. When they repented of their ways, they found in Jesus a Savior who not only forgave them, but united them to himself. All of their sin wasn't enough to keep Jesus from loving them and forgiving them. On the other hand, Jesus reserved his harshest criticism in the gospel toward groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, men who prided themselves on their moral purity. 
These men were no more acceptable to God than the most brazen prostitute, and yet they flaunted their righteousness before God and man like they were peacocks strutting their tails about them. And when Jesus called them to repent of their sin, to repent of their pride, their response was ultimately, forget him. And then finally, kill him. Get rid of him. We don't want to hear this. And by rejecting the Savior, they rejected his kingdom. They rejected the blessing and the life that God offered them through his son. Their false pride was worth too much for them to give up for the sake of humility. And true humility involves a correct understanding of oneself before God and acceptance of that reality. The reality for Christians is that apart from Jesus, we've got nothing to offer the Lord that is pleasing to him. But once we recognize that spiritual poverty, when we repent of it before Jesus, he takes us in our emptiness and he fills us with the holiness that we must have in order to be in the presence of God. As Isaiah 66 verse two says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. But humility and contrition are hard for us to practice, especially in a world that tells us to flaunt the things that we're proud of. Seriously, we just a couple of months ago spent an entire month celebrating pride all things. We have any kind of lack, any kind of poverty at all. You cover that up. No one wants to see that. And you best do what you can to make up for that lack. And we Christians are tempted to do the same thing. And when we do that, spiritually, we become self-reliant. We start to find our worth in ourselves because I live that lifestyle. I align with this group. I align with that cause. That's how I'm a good person. That's what makes me acceptable to God. And once we start doing that, once we start thinking that, we deceive ourselves into thinking that we have added something to our salvation and acceptance before the Lord. That is a toxic thought and a corrupting thought for us to entertain. So let us reject it. Instead, let us remember that we must cling to the cross of Christ alone, because it is there only that we find acceptance for God, from God, and it's from there that we are guaranteed to receive acceptance. So the person with the ideal life has nothing to offer God, and he finds favor only because of the good grace of someone else. And he's humble enough to recognize this and give glory to God because of it. But the blessed person isn't just poor in spirit. As we see in the second beatitude, our second point, he is also mournful. That's what we find in Matthew 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If it seemed confusing that the blessed person was the one who is poor, then it should really start throwing us for a loop that we hear that the blessed person is also mournful. What reason would a person who has the good spiritual life, who has the ideal spiritual life, why would he be sad? What possible reason is there for that? Why is he mournful? Well, we must understand it first. When Jesus says mournful, he's not talking about the emotion of sadness as we normally think about it. He's not saying that the people who are blessed are the pessimists who can't see anything good or happy about life. That's not the point. The mournful person, actually, is someone who looks at life with eyes like God 
and he is grieved by what he sees around him. In the first beatitude, we said that the blessed person is poor in spirit because he recognized himself to be a wicked sinner before the throne of God. And he recognized that he was not capable of anything that was spiritually good. And yes, he has repented of that sin. That is true. But he still knows that he sins against the Lord almost constantly. And he hates that sin. It hurts him. It grieves him that he continues to sin against the Lord, that he continues to disobey the Almighty One who has shown him such mercy. You can read the words of Paul in Romans 7, verse 24, and say along with the apostle, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He looks at how he continues to rebel against the Lord in thought, word, and deed, and he mourns the fact that he continues in his disobedience. And at the same time, the mournful man looks around him, and he sees how sin has affected everything. It's not as though there's nothing happy in the world around him. It's not as though there's nothing for him to take joy in. In his mercy, God has given us any number of good things that we can rejoice in, any number of good things that we can enjoy and take pleasure in in their times and their seasons. But the spiritually mournful person is serious. He gives, look, uh, he gives a hard look to the life around him, to the world around him, and says, this is not how it's supposed to be. There is something wrong in the world around us. There is something wrong with us as humans, and we can't fix that on our own. The evidence is everywhere around him. When his loved ones make sinful decisions, frankly, bad decisions, that have also awful consequences. And he has to watch how they suffer with them, how they have to endure under the effects of their bad decisions, and how they affect other people around them. That hurts him. When he watches his neighbors not only reject the laws of God, but flaunt it. When they bring misery to themselves, and they take joy in that, misery. He grieves it. He's upset by their foolishness and their stubbornness because he doesn't want that for them. Perhaps above all of it, he sees that death hangs over him and everyone else. He knows that death is not natural, that this is not normal, that but for the first sin of the first man and woman, death never would have been a part of human life the human experience, but because sin is a reality, death is therefore the unavoidable, irrefutable fate of every man, every woman, even of every miscarried little child who never got the chance to leave their mother's womb and did nothing wrong. Death is an unavoidable reality for all humans. We know that, but we also know that this is not how it's supposed to be. We know that death is on some level wrong, but we have to live with it. While his neighbors do their best to just ignore the elephant in the room, while they tell themselves, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die, the spiritually mournful man goes up to that elephant, looks it right in the eye, and he grieves it. He weeps that it exists. But why then is the mournful man considered blessed by Jesus after all that? Because he will be comforted. The mournful man doesn't try to comfort himself with trinkets and distractions. He doesn't tell himself, I'll do what I feel like now because I'll die tomorrow. 
No, he receives comfort from another being. He receives comfort from God himself. Spiritually mournful man knows that death is not right. He knows that the effects of living in a sin-filled world are wrong. But he also knows that those effects will be reversed, that they will be undone by the Lord. He knows that every evil that sin has introduced into the world will be erased, and that every good thing that has been corrupted by sin will be restored to how it was supposed to be. He knows that the dead in Christ will live again, that they will be given new life because of Jesus Christ. He knows all of this because the Son of God has come to earth. And through him, the Father has done a mighty work on earth that he will bring to completion. The mournful person is the one who can look seriously at the world and say, we, humanity, we have sinned against the Lord. As nations, as small units, as individuals, we pay the cost of our sin. He not only understands that he himself is a sinner, he understands the gravity of his sin, understands that he has grieved the Lord, that he has offended the Lord and harmed his fellow man because of his sin. He understands that everyone around him has done the same. But at the same time, the mournful man is hopeful because he knows for a fact that the Lord has provided the remedy for our sin in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the comfort who has been given to his people because he has dealt with all of our sin, taken away all of its weight and gravity, and causes us to be made holy, causes us to be seen as holy by his Father, at the same time that his Spirit is sanctifying us. Because of him, we have the comfort that we are pleasing in Christ's eyes, in God's eyes now. We have the comfort that our sinfulness will one day be a distant memory, that the wickedness of the world will be dealt with for good, and that death itself will be slain. The mournful person, even as he weeps over sin, knows that the day of Revelation 21, verse 4, will come to pass. The day when he will weep every, wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. To be spiritually mournful, to be rightly mournful, requires a humble admission that our sins that my sin is terribly offensive to God, and that its effects on earth are horrid in every sense of that word. But how do we normally see our sins? It's not that bad. Better on some days than another, but on the whole could be much worse and not as bad as that guy over there. No, Christ isn't calling us to go around wearing sackcloths and putting ashes on our heads and weeping and mourning visibly all the time. Not every moment. But as Christians, we need to take a serious stock of our life. The world and face the evil in it for what it is. Then we can pray for God's restoration. His revelation of the sin in our own lives. We pray that he will remove it from us. Which he indeed will over time. Because of Christ. 
I think there's a great danger that we fall into sometimes. When we start dismissing the seriousness of our sin or minimizing the seriousness of sin. Our unsaved neighbors, they basically treat sin as an unclean word. It's something that's just best left to the dustbin of religious history. Because we don't want to feel guilty. We don't want to think about our sin. Sometimes we do the same thing. We don't want to think about being sinners. We want to think about the things that we've maybe not done great, but I don't want to think about my sin. Or else sin is something that we toy with. We can wink and talk, we can wink at it, we can nod at it, take pleasure in such devilish fun. Or talk about, oh, that looks so simple. That's just so simple, but it's so much fun. I'm going to enjoy it so much. It's not that bad. Brothers and sisters, let us never treat our sin as something to laugh at. Honestly, it's better to take our chances playing with a cobra than playing with our sin. Let us not continue to offend the Lord with sin. Let us leave the sins that we commit against him. And yet at the same time, let us look forward to and pray for the day to come quickly when we will no longer be able to sin against God again, when we will be in his presence forever. So the blessed person who has the ideal, godly life, God-given life, is someone who is poor and is mournful. It's not really how we would expect to start that list. And he is blessed because, according to Jesus, he has an accurate view of his spiritual life, his spiritual standing before God. And then because of that right view that becomes clearer as time is spent, he starts to become more like the Son of God. That right view begins to change how he sees himself, how he interacts with God and man. And our third point, that the blessed man is meek, will begin to show us what that life looks like, how it is lived out. But what is the sort of person that we say we want in our time in history? What's the sort of person that changes history? What sort of attitude um, earns you the respect of your peers? at least in theory. What's the person that we say is the mover and the shaker? In my experience, the person who really changes things, who gets ahead in life, is the one who has plans and goals and lets nothing get in his way. The person who takes charge of their own life and just charges ahead, sets themselves to the grindstone and takes a hold of whatever it is that they want. Encounter a barrier, go around it. Can't go around it, Break through it. Assert your rights, assert your desires, take what's yours, and then you'll get the life that you've always deserved to have. Throughout history, really, that's the sort of person that people respect, that they look up to, the ones that have their lives sorted out and everything put together. It's true in our day, and it was just as true in Jesus' day as well, for his disciples. Think about it. How much time did the disciples spend arguing with one another? How many, how many times have we told when the disciples were fighting with one another as to who would be the best in the kingdom of heaven, who would have the highest throne, would have the best position? How many times did they ask Jesus, are we going to start the kingdom now? Are we going to kick the Romans out of Israel now and replace it with the Israelite kingdom now? It happens quite a bit. But actually, who is the person that Jesus calls blessed? Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness? Meekness is praiseworthy of all things? 
You mean the mousy little compromiser? The person who would let a mosquito suck them dry just to be nice to it? That's the person we call blessed? How does that make any sort of sense? Well, understand, Jesus is not encouraging his disciples to be weak-willed little jellyfish. Meekness is not the same thing as having a weak personality. It's more that meekness is unassertive. A person of great spiritual meekness doesn't insist on getting their own way or having their own desires or ambitions met. Now, it's not to say that a meek person doesn't have goals, doesn't have ideas, doesn't have resources to utilize. A meek person could easily be a good, strong leader or a goal setter. But a meek person is not a control freak because to him, his ambitions are not the most important thing. He might well have good ideas that need to get accomplished. He might well be a good leader that people look up to. He might well be a go-getter. But at the end of the day, whatever sort of person he is like, if he is meek, then it is more important to him that God be in control. Because the meek person knows something of the greatness of God, and he knows about his own spiritual poverty. He knows that what the Lord wants is better than what he wants, and it is more important that God's way be done than his own way. To obey God is more important than anything for the meek person. So he submits himself to God. His thoughts become the Lord's because his actions should be the kind that are pleasing to God. And the development of that meekness before the Lord, that submission before the Lord, becomes meekness before others of mankind. Instead of bulldozing their way through life, the meek person wants to do what is right for his fellow man, according to what the Lord has said. He wants to return good for good. And more challenging, he wants to return good for evil. When a brother or sister brings godly criticism to him, even stern criticism, the meek person doesn't simply blow them off or blow up in their faces. The meek person takes the criticism and applies it well because he knows that he is not infallible. He knows that he needs correction and discipline at times. He doesn't flare up and he doesn't assert himself when he doesn't need to because he loves the Lord. And he knows of the love of God for him. That is where he gets his value. Not in setting his own values, not in establishing his own rights above other people. Now the world looks at that kind of person and frankly says, what a fool. Dude's never going to get anywhere. He's never going to amount to anything because he won't stand up for himself. But Jesus says that sort of man is blessed and he will inherit the earth. The meek will inherit the earth because since they know the love of God that he has for them, because they know what the Lord does for those whom he calls his own, there is then nothing that they don't expect to get from God. The same Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is within them has promised to give his people every good and perfect gift in its proper time. And the meek person, because he knows the love of the Lord, is content to wait for those things to come. Not his will, but the will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
The meek person receives that attitude and the promised inheritance because of their union to Jesus Christ. Through the work of God the Holy Spirit, we, you and me, are made partakers of Jesus' death and his resurrection. We have been spiritually united to him in his death to sin and his rising to eternal life. Because of Christ, we Christians are called the children of God. And as Romans 8 verse 17 says, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. A person who is meek is not weak, is not weak-willed. It's not that he lacks the means or the desire to make his life better. It's that whatever he does possess, whatever he does want, he is firstly dependent upon the Lord. He opts not to make his own will done because submission to the will of God, to the desires of God, is simply more important. Satisfying his own ambition is frankly irrelevant at best and unhelpful at worst if it interferes with God's commands, with God's desires for his life. It is the man or woman who is submissive to the Lord who has a place and an inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. The meek person is like his savior who didn't strike back when he was insulted on the way to the cross. He didn't answer back when he was beaten. Jesus could have resisted his captors, his executioners at any time. He had the means to do so. At any point in his trial leading up to his execution, Jesus could have clapped his hands, called for legions of angels to slay the Romans, get down off of the cross, and heal his body to perfect human health. But it was more important to him to fulfill all righteousness and die on the cross. It was more important to him that he obey his father, even though that meant death. Does meekness characterize us? Are we willing to submit ourselves to the Lord when he makes his word and his will plain? Are we willing to submit to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, counting each other and each other's desires as more important than our own, as more important than ourselves? Are we willing to count our own desires, our own wishes, things that might even well be good and helpful as less important than accomplishing what God wants, as secondary when it comes to serving the Lord? Or are we self-assertive? Do we think that whatever I want, whatever I envision for myself, for my family, for whatever, that must happen. It has to happen because that's where I find my worth. That's how I know that good has been accomplished. And I need this to happen to be really happy you like Burbank, let submissiveness to God always be on front of our hearts as a congregation. And let that same meekness come out before us, for our spouses, our children, our parents, our friends, and our neighbors, so that they can see the character of Jesus Christ in us and all throughout us. With this third beatitude, you're beginning to understand what the blessed man sees in God, how he sees God, how he sees himself, and how he sees the world around him. He sees these things in a way that is unique to being a Christian. Non-believers don't have this view. With this unique perspective, it 
begins to change his actions, begins to change his desires. We touched on this just a bit in the meekness, but that's not the final change that comes to the believer, not by a long shot. As we'll see in the coming weeks, the way of a believer involves many things, the vast majority of which, frankly, are difficult. But God has given us all of these things, given us all of these characteristics in Christ Jesus, and he will bring them out in us, and he will bring them to completion. Amen. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Father, we give you thanks for working in us, for giving us these blessings, for giving us these characteristics. We pray, Father, that as we work with your spirit, as he works in us, that we grow in them more and more. We ask, Father, that we would submit ourselves to you, submit ourselves to your training and your discipline. Father, please build us up. Build us up to be more like your son, to grow into your image, help us to be like you. In the name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. We thank you for what you've done and what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand together if you are able, and we will sing our next song, Abide With Me. We'll be singing verses 1, 2, and 4 this morning.